This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 47. This is Writing Excuses, world-building science fiction with Cory Doctorow. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Piper. I'm Howard. And I'm Corey. So we're talking about world building and science fiction. Most of the time when we talk about world building, it's very fantasy oriented. But world building is actually something that you need to do regardless of what kind of fiction you're writing. And since Corey writes science fiction and is often uh, near future, just around the corner science fiction... Um, the world building that he does has to tie pretty tightly to what's going on in the real world. So how do you how do you get there? How do you extrapolate? Yeah, so I, I, extrapolating is a good word for it because I like to be really clear that it's never predicting. Right? There's there's nothing more fatalistic than the idea that we can predict the future. Because you know, if there's one thing I believe and that kind of animates me, it's that we can change the future based on the choices that we make. So I, I like to to feel like um, futuristic parables are a good way to understand the present, but they only work as parables if they feel plausibly futuristic. And there are there are some good cheap tricks for that. Um, I often analogize near future SF to uh, going to the doctor to get your throat swabbed. Right, the doctor goes. The doctor takes a swab of your throat. She puts it in a petri dish. She gives it seventy two hours. What she's got then is not an accurate model of your body. She has this like usefully inaccurate model of your body where she's taken one fact of your body that she wants to use to understand a factor that is otherwise drowned out by the noise of the thousand other processes going on in your body and she's reified it so it's the one fact in this little world in a bottle. And as science fiction writers, we can reach into the world and we can take a technology or a phenomenon and we can build a world around it in which that is has a centrality that isn't it isn't um predictive because there would be all the confounding factors that would go into it but by elevating it to this like to the center of a narrative we can equip the readers to understand the subtle effects of that technology as we're living in it now which gives them a benchmark to understand it in the future it becomes a kind of emotional architects fly through of a 3d model of what it would be like if, as this technology becomes more significant, more important. World-building strep. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, drones are never going to be the only important thing in our world, but drones are going to have a big important f- effect on our world. And you could write a drone story where drones had a centrality that would let you think through some of those issues and and let give readers a, a vocabulary for comparing the world that they're into it, you know, in the same way that we can say that Mass surveillance is Orwellian. You know, you might be able to say that it's uh, Robinette Koalian uh, or, or, or Doctorovian or whatever, or, or, or Drakean. You know, if you if you found a um, if you found the right narrative and, and hooked it up the right way. So that that diagnostic tool, that kind of predicting the present for me is is a really useful way to think about science fiction and its role in the world. I bought some solar powered sidewalk lamps at Walmart for like five bucks, uh-huh. and opened them up and realized they had AA rechargeable batteries in them. Huh. What I had was a $6 solar-powered AA battery charger. 
Right. And it forced me to rethink every post-apocalyptic thing I've ever read because now, boy, the lights aren't going off until I run out of rechargeable batteries. Right. Because, and, and I'm not likely to run out of those soon if it's a, if it's like a zombie post-apocalypse. Um, this kind of extrapolation is so much fun because, because we are living through some fun tipping points, you know, the tipping point of, uh, solar and renewable, uh, mm-hmm. tipping points of, um, uh, uh, surveillance, surveillance, drone mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. Uh, extrapolating these things just 20 years forward is fun. Yeah. And I also want to say that if you want to give your work an enduring uh, legacy, if you want to make it continue to feel realistic in the future or, or at least salient in the future, the one one really good way to do that is to uh, understand that computer science theory is actually pretty static. Computer engineering is a very fast-moving field, but the theory on which it's built is pretty static. Like, since the war years, we've known how to build really one kind of computer. It's the Turing complete computer that can run every program that we can conceive of. Now, this has been a a huge boon because it means that if you can make computers faster and smaller um, than any program you can think of can run on them, it means that computers colonize everything. The the, uh, device that you're listening to this on is a computer and the house that you're in may be a computer at this point in the sense that if you took the computers out, the house might become uninhabitable. If you have a pacemaker, you have a computer in your body, your car is definitely a computer if it was made in the last 10 years. You trust your body to it, it whisks you down the road at 80 miles an hour or five miles an hour if you live in Los Angeles. And, and, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, that computer design, the one computer that can run every program also has this major downside, which is we don't know how to not make it run undesirable programs. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't know how to not make it run programs that pirate copyrighted works, and we don't know how to not make it run programs that are malicious, and we don't know how to make it run programs that are, we don't want criminals to have access to, like uh, encryption technology. There's this move now to uh, restrict access to encryption technology so that criminals can't have conversations in secret. And it's somewhat of a moot question because, you know, you might say, well, in this country, we don't let you run that program, but how do you stop people from downloading that program and running it on their computer? We don't know how to make a computer that can't run the program, period. Um, We don't know how to make an iPhone that can't run software that's blessed by Apple. And so this is a really interesting point because our closest approximation is the Apple solution, which is a program that has spyware running on it that checks to see whether you're doing something the manufacturer dis- disapproves of. And uh, if you try to do it, it says, you know, I can't let you do that, Dave. And and so that fact, that's a really important fact that like plays out in our policy all the time. And then a related fact that I alluded to is that we know how to make encryption that works and we know how to make encryption that doesn't work, but we don't know how to use make as encryption that works only when we need it to stop working, right? <laughs> like when criminals use it. And like... We keep trying, and it is a catastrophic failure because, you know, encryption is how we make sure that the firmware update in your pacemaker doesn't kill you in your boots. And if we say, well, we're going to ban working encryption, then what we really say is we're going to make it so that we can't validate the the payloads that we send to your pacemaker to make sure that it's getting new firmware. (laughs) We can can keep criminals from conspiring, but we can't keep them from killing you with the thing in your chest. And indeed, they will continue to conspire. So, so, so... 
Um, both of these facts, and then the third fact about technology is that governments are really struggling to come to grips with both of these two other facts, that encryption works and that we only know how to make one kind of computer. And they will not cease to struggle with it because computers are colonizing every category of device, which means that they're central to every policy problem we have, which means that they'll keep making this mistake. If you make any one of or all three of those facts central to your fiction— it will continue to be a parable, parable about all the bad things going on in our world, unfortunately, for the entire foreseeable future. And, and that means that you can have a book like Little Brother, the novel of mine that I'm really best known for, that I wrote in 2006, that continues to be cited as an incredibly, like, gripping, futuristic, salient tale that has something to tell us about our present day, only because it has this techno-realistic element to it. You can also take a look at science from another aspect as well, and that's from medicine, which you touched on with pacemakers. Mm -hmm. But you think about what we can do with DNA at this stage. Mm -hmm. For a while there, we wouldn't, the main basis for why the FDA wouldn't allow um, organ transplant and organs to be grown in something like porcine, like pigs, was because pigs had a retrovirus that could potentially be transferable to humans, which was would be terrible considering the time frame and what it could do. But now we have the ability, now in today's day and age, to adjust their genetic makeup and composition to eradicate that virus in that strain of pigs and therefore making it safe. And we do now, there's a company that does it, grow kidneys in pigs and have gotten to successful transplants in primates and is proposed to potentially go to successful transplant for humans, which could change the lives of people who are on the list waiting for kidneys. Now, that doesn't take that much more in terms of steps forward mm -hmm. to imagining what that kind of science and that, what kind of, that, that kind of medicine can do to change the near future. Or if we play with the zombie apocalypse, because at least one of my series has done that, we look at vaccines. Like BSC is a major thing that I do in my day job, or not do, <laughs> but um, that's related to what I look at in terms of data in my day job to keep it safe. It's bovine spongiform encephalitis. It is non-transferable to humans. But what if it became transferable? Mm -hmm. What if that virus became transferable? Mm -hmm. You have zombies now. You have people with brains that look like Swiss cheese when you take a, a, a cut of it. So delicious, delicious Swiss cheese. I mean, we Apparently. have Kurtzfeld Jakob already, right? That's yeah. the, the human form of it, but it's thankfully very, very rare. Very rare. And, and yet still, it's it's not that far in the future when you can see the zombie apocalypse coming out of that. So what you're basically talking about here is taking a, a single point and following logical causal chains to see where it goes and, and the branching effects as you move forward. In many ways, what you're talking about is treating technology like a magic system. Sure. And, and not trying to, you know, yes, it's, it's good to have lots of, um, you know, texture in there of other technologies, but, but not trying to, uh, uh, play Nostradamus. Yeah. Yes. Right. And instead trying to make up a little parable. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, let's go ahead and pause here for the book of the week. Sure. Which is one of yours. Yeah. I, I wrote, the most world-building-ish novel I wrote, I think, is called Walk Away. 
Uh, and it's the one with the fewest of what Carl Schrader calls the backless maiden from the Arthurian legend of the knight who meets the beautiful maiden, but she never shows her back to him. And then she steps in front of the fireplace and the fire flickers through her eyes and he realized she has no back. And that's really so much of our fiction doesn't have a back to it. Walk away. I really thought a lot about what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, it's a, a, a optimistic disaster novel, a utopian disaster novel. It's about people being good to each other in times of crisis and working to uh, rebuild uh, and it's not a world in which um, there are good people and bad people. It's a world in which there are people who think that the world is made up of good people and bad people, and people who think that the world is made up of people who think that there are good people and bad people, and uh, people like themselves who know that most people are just a mixed bag of goodness and badness, and that incentives and structures and, and um, exigencies determine whether we're good or bad at any given moment, and who are trying to make a world that um, brings out the good in everyone, it's uh, full of people doing things like using drones to find garbage in blighted, climate-wracked uh, badlands, and then using software to figure out what kind of fully automated luxury communist resorts they can build out of garbage, and then moving into them and reveling in how cool it is until weird oligarchs come along and say, hey, that's my garbage, and then they walk away and find some more garbage in another blighted brownfield site to build on, and this is kind of their journey, and it goes well until... Um, they have a, a shot at practical immortality, uh, which they acquire from scientists from the from the oligarch classes who who decide that they're not going to be complicit in speciating the human race into infinitely prolonged uh, plutocrats and mayflies disappearing in their rearview mirror, which is the rest of us. They steal the fire from the gods, bring it to us so that we can all be immortal too. And when rich people realize that they're going to have to spend the rest of eternity with us, they cease to see these walkaway communities as like... Um, cute bohemias they can steal fashion and art from and instead bring out the hellfire missiles and that's when it kind of all gets interesting and kicks off hmm. so it's a simple novel yeah it's got <laughs> a lot of moving parts that book for sure um and it's a really fantastic audiobook i have to say that's very kind of you it it's very good and i'm very picky about my audiobooks well you know i produced the audiobook myself uh and the readers are spectacular um the the bulk of it is carried by amber benson from buffy uh, but also we have Will Wheaton on it and Myron Willis and and Gabrielle DeQuir and and uh, guest appearance by Amanda Palmer. Uh, it's really a terrific audiobook. And so that's Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. Yeah. So let's talk about world building for stories that are set in the present, because this is a thing that I think a lot of people overlook. They forget that you have to establish a world for people in the real world, especially if you're tweaking things a little bit, uh, whether that is adding a single technological element to your, your present day or um, just even establishing a world within a, a closed ecosystem like a high school or a corporate structure that doesn't actually exist. So what are some of the ways that you think about world building when you're doing something in the present day? I will say, and and this is kind of a dangerous thing, but I will say that romance writers get a lot that we don't have to do world building. Yeah. Uh, because it's not true. <laughs> exactly. Particularly contemporary or romantic suspense romance writers. Um, because of the fact that it is set in, in the modern day um, or contemporary times. But we do. I, uh, one of the best world building that I can think of right off the top of my head is... Um, the Lucky Harbor series by Jill Chalvis because it is small town. It's a made up small town on the in the Pacific Northwest, and 
it feels so real that you think a town is there. The people are real. The bed and breakfast is real. You go into town. The diner's real. You know, and and buildings feel real. And you almost have a mental map in your head of where everything is. And that's because the world building is done so very well by that author. Um, Because the author took the time to think about where this was going to be, what the weather was going to be, even what the highway would be like driving up to it. Mm. And you know, how long it would take to walk down to the bed and breakfast. That is one of the key points. And what the actual focal points around the town were that built up over the course of all the books in the series. The series is so successful that it's gone to like, I could be wrong, but I think it's around nine to 12 books. Mm. Um, and that's pretty amazing for a contemporary romance to have the kind of world building where people, you think you know where like the Ferris wheel is, you think you know where the pier is, you think you know where the boat is docked that they hanky-pankied in, in this book, and then the tree that they fell out of that the person broke their leg in. And and the thing is that this kind of world building gives you opportunities for conflict, it gives you opportunities to uh, add depth to the characters. It's not actually just world building for the sake of world building. It, it definitely makes things feel more real and Gives the readers some uh, a way to ground. I read um, I read a novel uh, f- for professional reasons uh, that I can't recommend, and so I'm not going to name. Um, in which all of the love interests were retired baseball players, and like in that a small, narrows it down. Yes, <laughs> in, in a small town, and I'm like the. The economics of being retired baseball players in small towns, and they were all people who had been forcibly retired. So, mm. but none of them had other jobs, and it was like, how does that? Like, this sounds paranormal. Yeah, <laughs> it does, and it was not. It's the how do the friends afford that apartment in New York yes, problem? Yes, exactly yeah. that problem, which is why the world building. It's like the only one who had a job was a barista, as far as we can. I mean, technically, the others had jobs, but it was the. Uh, I've talked about it in in other contexts. Uh, The CBS uh, Elementary, the Sherlock Holmes show, is set in present-day New York. Um, But the world building, uh, you know, there is is the massive criminal organization run by Moriarty. There is the massive business organization run by Moreland Holmes. Uh, And these elements, there are callbacks to these things throughout it. The precinct, the officers, the judges, mm. the the brownstone that Holmes lives in, all of these details have been overlaid on a New York that feels very real to me, who doesn't live in New York, um, but the series gets good reviews from people who do live in New York. Uh, they've managed to blend location research with some fun world building and some fun callbacks to the, uh, the the Conan Doyle homes from... My, my favorite example of uh, contemporary SF world building is William Gibson's Pattern Recognition Trilogy. Mm. And these are science fiction novels that were each set about two years before they came out. So uh, a science fiction novel oh, set in wow. 2003 that came out in 2005, that sort of thing. And they are science fiction novels about people, particularly New Yorkers, after 9-11, living through the rise of the surveillance state. And a lot of the characters are spooks, and a lot of the characters are sort of spook-adjacent or are in the crosshairs of spooks. And it's about people living through a moment of absolute technological upheaval. And what he does is he approaches it, this thing that had happened in our recent past, he approaches it as though it were a great 
technical upheaval that people were living through, which we had, but it had been just long enough that we'd become adapted to it. And the shock of them was just spectacular. And it reminds me of my favorite Brian Eno aphorism. Brian Eno has this thing called the Deck of Oblique Strategies that he used when he was recording Roxy Music and a bunch of other bands, which were these like gnomic aphorisms that you would draw out of a deck of cards and he would make everyone try and do it. My favorite one is be the first person to not do something that no one else has ever thought of not doing before. <laughs> and uh, there's so many times where this comes up and when I'm thinking about how you might try something new. And Gibson wrote futuristic science fiction about the recent past. He was the first person not to set futuristic science fiction in the future. It was great. <laughs> Every one I of us that. has our mouths drop open right now. Yeah. The faces yeah. that we have in the room. Oh, Brian Eno's a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Came up with the Windows 95 chime. Really? <laughs> yeah, that was, he, wow. the startup, he made the startup music for Windows 95. Had no idea. Yeah. Ah, well, on that note, huh? Uh, let's go ahead. I think you mean, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's go ahead and uh, give our fair listeners a homework assignment. Corey. Sure. One of the things that's often missing from uh, world building is economics. I think it was Stephen Bruce that observed that you can always tell if a Marxist has written your fantasy novel because the ratio of vassals to lords is right. Um, I wrote a novel about gift economies. And um, gift economies are economies in which uh, things are not given on a reciprocal basis. That's barter. Uh, things are given with no expectation of return. And we've just lived through a kind of 40-year social experiment in uh, making everything transactional, uh, where, where you know, there is, there, there is no such thing as society, and greed is good, and selfishness produces pre-optimal outcomes. And it's hard not to reciprocate. But if you think through the things in your life that are non-reciprocal, you'll find that some of the most important things in your life are non-reciprocal, right? Like, if you came out and said to your partner, look, the only reason I'm married to you is that I expect that when the day comes and I can't wipe my own ass that you're going to do it for me in, 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 in thanks for all the times I brought you a cup of coffee, that you would be a kind of human monster, right? Make a list of 10 things in your life that are purely non-reciprocal, that you do only for the pleasure of giving something to someone else, the intrinsic pleasure of giving something to someone else. That is great homework assignment. Uh, and with that, you are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts for this episode were Mary Robinette Kowal, Piper J. Drake, Howard Taylor, and special guest Corey Doctorow. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. 
I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.